Father in heaven, you are a great God. Words uh, limit us in our description of you. And Lord, we use terms like great and marvelous for lots of things, but they fall short in comparison to your greatness. You are a great God. You laid down a great plan. Before the foundations of the world, you laid down a plan that would rescue men who you knew would reject you. It was a great plan. It's been fought against since the fall of Satan. Since the fall of man, it has been attempted to be thwarted, but you have held this plan, Lord. And we thank you for this time of year because it reminds us that nothing could stop this great plan you had to you had desired to have come true. We thank you for your great Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. We've sang this morning, Emmanuel, God with us. He is the revelation of you. We behold you in the face of Christ. Thank you for your great Savior, your great Son. We thank you for the great family that you have made us a part of. Believers down through the ages that have put their faith in a God who would deliver them. In a Savior named the Lord Jesus Christ. You have made us part of a family. And we thank you that we are not strangers and aliens to you. We may be to the world, but to you we are your children. We know you have a feast prepared for us. We know you have a place reserved for us. Thank you for the family. Thank you for the great message you give us to teach. We are not without words, God. We we are not left to make up our own belief system. You have given us the great message. From Genesis to Revelation, you have revealed the story. You have revealed the truth. And Lord, it is great pleasure that we as a church proclaim this truth and carry this message abroad. Lord, we thank you for a great end. There is a great end coming. And though we struggle along in this fallen world, there is a great end that will come. And you will return and you will gather your children. And you will bring us home to be with you. And your son will be the eternal light. And you will wipe away every tear. And we will worship you for eternity. Ever growing and knowing and loving you deeper and deeper. And Lord, our minds fail to grasp the bottom of that truth. But Lord, we know and believe it is a great end. So Lord, as we look at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, we ask that you would give us strength to know your greatness that we would marvel in the great truths of a virgin birth, a conception uh, placed in the womb by the Holy Spirit himself. These magnificent truths, Lord, that we fight for, Lord, we stand for, that these things would be etched in our hearts and minds this morning. We give you glory for this, Lord. We pray for our missionaries around the world that preach this same message. Give them favor, give them grace. Be with those that cannot be here. Many struggling with flus and colds, Lord. Please, please be gracious to them, Lord. Heal them quickly, Lord, and return them back to the family. We pray this all in Jesus' name. 
Amen. We have been working our way on Wednesdays and even in our Christmas banquet through Matthew a little bit, um, particularly just in the first 17 verses. And we've seen the seed of Christ in a sense, right? This is a a great book of uh, opening of of Matthew, the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the, the very seed that was promised. We have seen many unusual births as we've looked through this. We see men like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and even Judah. These are unusual births. They are uh, things that are foreign to us in some ways. You have an Abraham that's 100 years old when he fathers Isaac. And yet he fathered children in sin before that. You see great lacks of faith by patriarchs and matriarchs down through it. But yet God remains faithful through it all. And what the genealogy of Jesus teaches us, many things, but first it teaches us to have faith alone in God alone, in Christ alone. And if you work your way, as we've looked at this at many different lessons, if your faith is in any of these people, these men or women in this, or in yourself, you will never see the kingdom of God. And so our faith alone is in God's perfect plan. We also, last Wednesday, looked at the global nature of this genealogy. We saw that God from the beginning had set in his plan that he would collect people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And out of all the women that are represented here by their husbands, only four are mentioned in the first six verses. They're all Gentiles, Canaanite women, Tamar and Rahab, a Hittite, Bathsheba, and a Moabist, Ruth. All women raised separate than Israel, separate of knowing the living God. All women pointed towards multiple gods, plurality of gods, and left to themselves would suffer great eternal doom. But God has a global nature. From the beginning, he designed to gather everyone together. We even see this in the birth of Christ. We spoke of this Wednesday. The shepherds, many believe, probably weren't Jewish. They were probably hired hands that watched temple flocks on the hills out there. The kings come from the east. They are not Jewish. Even around the birth of the manger scene that we'll look at next Sunday, it is very global. God wants us to know that he came to save the world. He came to save people from every walk of life. And then he wants us to know that it is vital not to put our trust in ourselves. It is dangerous to believe that somehow you have the moral goodness to bring yourself to God. And this is a reminder as you study down through this that we cannot bring ourselves to God in any way. And to reject this message, to reject the virgin birth, the conception by the Holy Spirit of the child in Mary's womb, is to reject God. It really is. It's to reject the whole plan of God. And there are so many who fight, and we are going to talk about big subjects this morning, as we just look at these simple verses 
they open the door to amazing theological thoughts of how God did and did what he did and why he did what he did. But to reject, to reject these principles that we'll look at this morning is to reject God himself. You cannot have a designer God. You cannot make a God up or a Bible up that, that fits your thinking. We as Christians, and I speak to the Christians in this room, we submit to God in his word. And we believe it. We believe it. And that's what gives us joy and stops us from arguing sinfully with people because we believe in this. And this morning as we look at this amazing birth or announcement of this birth, in this case, found in Matthew through the perspective of Joseph, we marvel at it. And there is not a birth like it. There never has been before this. There never will be after this. There is no birth like this. Let's look at a couple of thoughts this morning as we work our way through this text that Dan read to us. Number one, our salvation depends on the virgin birth of Jesus. Our salvation, the very security that you and I have, that one day when we pass from this life to the next, that you will be in heaven, is based in the virgin birth. I don't want you to miss that this morning. Look at verse 18 and 19 with me. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as followed. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Here, in, here we have in one verse the account of the divine conception of Jesus Christ, the God-man. In one verse, in one verse it tells us that. I think just the brevity of this account suggests to us that there's no way this could be the work of a man writing this. I literally could talk about the miraculous conception of Christ by the Holy Spirit and the virgin birth for hours. Come sit in my Christology class that starts in January and see how much time we will think and work through the depths of what happens here. The Bible gives us one verse. <laughs> and it makes your mind think. And it makes you uh, be in awe of such a momentous occasion described in a verse for us. Think about this. After 17 verses to prove Jesus' genealogy, he comes to, now Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, comes to the miraculous conception recorded in just this verse. So Jesus descends, this is what this verse is telling us, descends miraculously from God through a never again repeated act of the Holy Spirit, which is recorded by the act of the Holy Spirit and is placed in the womb of Mary. Never done before, never done again. Interesting, the word birth, it's a just the Greek word here is the same word used. If you look all the way back up in verse 1, it's the same word used for genealogy. Verse 1 says the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. It's the same word. So here is the birth of Christ. This is the genealogy of him. This is how he gets there. Not through 
um, man's effort, and though he was in the line to show him to be the Messiah, the genealogy of Jesus begins and ends with God. God places him there, not Joseph. Joseph had no part in the making, human making of Jesus. Mary has little in the Bible recorded about her as well. She most likely comes from a poor family, probably living around Nazareth. Her family most likely was in agriculture. We know that she has a sister named Salome. She is the mother of James and John, and that makes Jesus' cousin, makes those Jesus' cousin. Luke chapter 3, 23 through 28, gives us the genealogy of Jesus, showing that humanly she comes from the line of David, just as Matthew proves the line of Joseph. Mary's father is believed to be Heli, um, and yet we know very, very little about him. Even less is known about Joseph. If you study the life of Joseph here, the father, the, the earthly father of Jesus, we know a little about him. The Bible says his father's name was Jacob in verse 16. You'll see that. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Does it not say the father of Jesus? It says by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. He seems to be what little we do know, that a, was a craftsman, a carpenter by trade. But if Israel would had been obedient, think about this. If Israel had been obedient to God, Joseph's father would have been king of Israel. That lineage would have held. Instead, they ended up in captivity. And now Jesus comes in obscurity. The Bible tells us that Joseph and Mary were looked down at by the Pharisees repeatedly throughout the Gospels. Um, the Pharisees challenged Jesus, saying he's a carpenter's son, always done in spite, never done in a, uh, uh, an honoring way. Mary has spoken of one who was child outside of wedlock. They're rejected probably in their own hometown. But notice in verse 18, the scripture tells us that Joseph and Mary were in a betrothal stage of their courtship. This was a very important part of the Jewish culture. In the ancient world, particularly the Hebrews, the parents arranged marriages. Some of us think that's not a bad idea. <laughs> but this was done, and it was done early on. Girls were often betrothed to Men in their early teenage years, and boys just a few years older than that, was a different world. The world wasn't designed around the children. The children are part of a working family. From early age, they learned to work and be a healthy part of the family, productive in it. They were mature in a lot of ways. And so things were very different. And here we find Joseph and Mary in a betrothal period. They may not have been this young. Many suggest that Joseph was probably older because we don't see him at the cross. He, he dies. Men only live, live to about an age of 42 during this time as they look back at records. They died very early. Uh, Mary most likely was a little bit younger. But the marriage, the Hebrew marriage had two stages. The first being a betrothal stage. This lasted around a year and then the second would bring the marriage ceremony. During the first stage of betrothal, this would be like our engagement time, 
the groom, he would gather up his dowry. and It's kind of like a down payment or a price of the bride. And he would pay it to the father's bride. And many fathers are going, what happened to that? <laughs> we had all boys, so it's working out pretty good. Um, but think about that. This was a time for this young man to prove himself. Would he put up the money for her? Would he be faithful? That money was used often for the wedding or really a bit of, a, a bit of an insurance process, uh, a policy that he would stick around. However, once the dowry was exchanged, it became a legal contract. At that moment, this was a legal marital contract. The marriage was not consummated till after the marriage ceremony, but the consummation um, of the uh, before, if there was any consummation before the marriage ceremony, it was considered adultery and was reserved for stoning. The betrothed couple usually had very little or, um, if any, social contact with each other during this year. They did not run around and register at Target and all that kind of stuff. Uh, they actually were kept separate. They protected them. Much training was poured into this time as they prepared to make a commitment of life for each other. But notice in the text, this is a, this is a stunning little phrase. Verse 18, he was betrothed, Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. Before they came together. This was an indication that they had held to those vows. The vows of purity during this time of betrothal this was God's plan he had written this down that they were to remain pure in this relationship in both the old testament and new testament speak clearly of God's desire for purity within our relationships before marriage even after marriage God challenges us listen to Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 have we lost this concept I hope I hope we haven't lost it here, but maybe has this been lost? Just listen to this verse. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. Now this is New Covenant, right? This is Hebrews. This is writing to the church. Listen to this statement. This is why I, I, I am big fans of Joseph and Mary. I hope you are. They're a great example for us, aren't they? But here in the New Covenant, Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is to be held in honor among all. We'll say, ah, isn't this just a Christian thing? The Bible says for all. It's to be held of all, Jew, Gentile. And then it says this, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. God has set something uh, over this in a, set, in a sense that the, he is much glorified by the way we handle ourselves morally. Not because we have to, but because he has a, a great control in our life. The Spirit is in our life. We become the temple of God. And so we choose to morally guard the bedroom. And then the verse says this, and this is a hard one. It says, for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. God will judge. New Testament principle, Old Testament truths. I think Joseph and Mary believed this. And I think this is what made this so stunning when the revelation that she came up pregnant. Now, I think one of the keys here is Joseph's and Mary's purity was an important evidence of their godliness. They, they believed God's word. Hey, don't, don't think that people have, have, have changed. 
any of people in here are red-blooded and went through a betrothal or engagement process, you know um, the pressures that you experience. And even more so today when the world completely rejects that you should care about purity in any way at all. There's probably more pressure now than ever. But Joseph and Mary were concerned about this. And, I, and this wins favor with God, that they cared about the things of God. Uh, and we see Mary's response to, to the angel in Luke chapter 1, verse 34. There, there she's hearing this angel say that you're going to, to be pregnant. You're going to have a child. And she says what? How can this be, for I am a virgin? What a statement. In other words, I've honored my God. I chose when others would not. I chose by the grace of God. You could hear this maybe flow from this woman. You see it in her prayer. Um, that I chose to do these things. God looked upon this couple and gave them favor. Both Matthew and Luke affirmed their purity. But this now goes beyond the couple's own purity and moves to the protection of the divine sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a great statement about Joseph and Mary, and we're grateful for them. But there's a bigger picture that this is marking the, the eternal divine sonship, the purity of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Joseph and Mary's godliness extended beyond the betrothal period because it goes into the early period of their marriage. The ceremony must have taken place but they chose not to come together and exercise their marital rights because of this child. And we see that played out in this text. Now, partly through this couple, and, and, I'm, and I, again, I, I overwhelmed when I studied them, God used them to protect Jesus' reputation. He was, as Joseph, you think about him, he was, he's never called Jesus is never called the son of Joseph in the Bible. Joseph is never called Jesus' father in, in a sense, in a biological sense. Mary's song does not sing the praises of Joseph. And Jesus is the son of God in all of his holiness. And in so many areas, Joseph seems to step aside because of his care for God. He lets God have a glory. But notice verse 19, how this describes Joseph. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now, the scriptures are clear here in verse 19, telling us that Joseph was a just or righteous man. Well, that just simply means, and this is used of many men, Noah and, and, and Job, Job and others in the Old Testament, meaning he kept the Old Testament law consistently. Now think about this and this. He consistently strived to keep the Old Testament law in his heart. He was much different than the Pharisees. He lived from his heart. He, he fought those fleshly desires and by God's strength he would if he was here today he would say that I, I loved God and that gave me the ability to live consistently he most likely longed for the coming Messiah and this message from the angel of the Lord completely convinces Joseph to do the right thing now notice um, Joseph willingly gives up his 
marital rights. He restrains his desires for the glory of Christ. And, and this is because if, if Jesus, now we go back to the theological understanding of this, if Jesus is conceived by any, any human act of any man, he cannot be the divine son of God and thus not the savior of the world. And think about the result of that. His death would not save a single soul if Joseph truly was a biological father because he was fallen and needed a savior himself. The resurrection would be a hoax and every one of us would be sent to hell. Do you see what rides on the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ? It is the very gospel. It is the very nature that secures our eternal assurance and this is why we as a church so stand so clearly on these things. Now, clearly the scriptures teach Joseph was a good earthly husband and father. He provided and, and protected. But the Holy Spirit himself places Jesus in the womb according to Matthew 1.35. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you, the angel told. But without a God-given faith, there's so many who won't believe this, will they? And there's lots of other unbiblical theologies that come along with this that invade different churches but we're not those people we we by faith believe in god don't we do you ever try to take your bible and defend the existence of god the bible doesn't defend the existence of god do you know that you go scott what are you saying the bible assumes from the beginning in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth do you believe that by faith, God is God. We believe that. How about the creation of the world? How do you want to wrestle with that one for a little bit? We believe in a six-day creation. God said, and it was. God said, and it was. God said, and it was. He made them after his kind. They didn't develop any farther. They didn't evolve any farther. We believe that because the Bible says it. Everything, listen, everything that we wrestle with in here is by faith. So we come to the virgin birth and we go, well, let's just abandon that because we're not sure that would really work out. Our life is based in faith, isn't it? We believe in an almighty God. We believe in a creator. We believe in a savior that, that takes up residence, a spirit that takes up residence in a, in a believer's life at salvation. It's miraculous. And this is what God did for us. But the virgin birth should not have been a surprise when we see that, when we look at that. We, that should not surprise us. God has done surprising things all along to fallen men. The seed of man, whether in genealogy or depravity, is always linked to the earthly father, but not here, not Christ. He was conceived separately. It did not involve the fallen nature of an earthly father. And I just want you to, before I leave this point, think deeply. Mary's miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit is the only time in all of human history that a woman had the seed within her that did not come from a man. And it takes you all the way back to the garden. It takes you back to the promise of God that was laid down before the foundations of the world that I will give her a seed and that seed will what? Crush the head of Satan. And we are watching as, we, as we've been working through Genesis and now in Exodus and we're working our way in our Wednesday night services, watching that seed as God protects it, even with godless men in the line. 
God protects that seed. And just one more thought, and I have to get this verse in here somewhere, Galatians 4, 4, but when the fullness of time had come, now think about that, when that time that God had laid down before the foundations of the world, when that time came, God didn't go, well, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe we wait a little longer. That day was written down. When the fullness of time came, when it was complete is the word, the completion of time, when, when everything was led up to that time, God sent forth his son. He did not send forth somebody else's son. He sent himself. And the Bible says, born of a woman, not fathered by a man. Isn't that interesting? Born of a woman. And then the last phrase, think about this, born under the law. What a statement. You and I born under the law, we're in a lot of trouble. We're in a lot of trouble. No one ever keeps the law. No one's ever fulfilled it. But Christ did. He came still under the law. He himself brought the new covenant. He fulfilled the law and ushered in the second covenant, the greater covenant. And we live under that. So brothers and sisters, we must defend the virgin birth because our salvation depends on it. Second thought. A righteous earthly father and a virgin birth Back to 19 and 20, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been, uh, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, before we get to all the supernatural aspects of this, we're going to look at that in a minute. Think about what Joseph's going. I want to think personally here. This man, this man for what he can see from his view, he has been cheated on. <laughs> and if you've ever been cheated on in any way, there's a shame that even falls on the offended person. In counseling, we deal with this all the time. Sin has a remarkable way, and of course, I'm separating sin from anything to do here, but from Joseph's point of view, he's, what we're looking at is, before this angel talks to him, what's going through his mind, there's a, there's a sense of offense here. And even the person that's been offended falls, falls apart at times. There's a sick, twisted nature of mankind has, and I've watched many of men who've committed adultery make their ex-wives feel horrible. And yet they commit the sin. Imagine Joseph, he's loved this woman so dearly. He, he, he doesn't know what to do with her. And the scriptures teach us that, that he's suffering at some level here. I think this reveals his heart. He, he, he betrothed this woman. He had gathered funds for this woman. He had waited for this woman. Can you imagine the broken heart that he must feel? But the Bible's clear, isn't it here? He chooses to act righteously. Not, look at verse 19, not wanting to disgrace her. This is his goal. This is the way men who love God more than themselves will react. First, he decides that he would not, he would not have the right to marry her, right? He, he's stepping aside. There must be somebody else. This baby's not mine. That must go through his mind. Second, he chooses to give her a quick and quiet divorce to protect her from death, most likely. Deuteronomy 22, 22 through 24, I don't have time to read it, but goes both into the married person who commits adultery and those who commit adultery in the betrothal period. Each one of them are assigned to death by stones. 
That's what the Bible said. So this was Mary's fate if Joseph doesn't handle it quickly and rightly. Nowhere in the scriptures do we find that Joseph is bittered or resentment. I think it's because he loved her. And he desired that she would not fall under shame. The, the history tells us not at this point um, that not all women were stoned at this point in life. They were under Roman rule. They weren't able to take people's lives. But most of them fell into prostitution, were rejected by their own families. They, they found themselves totally isolated from society. Joseph knew this. And he began to ponder what to do with him. Again, I think the Bible is speaking of Joseph's personal righteousness. I think he was positionally righteous in God. He, had, he was chosen by God. God had declared him righteous by his faith, just like Abraham. But now he's acting in his positional righteousness, in his, in his practical righteousness as well. He's, he's making choices to say, I know this is what God would want me to do, even though my heart is broken. The text is interesting, isn't it? It's not hard to probably understand what's going on. As Joseph is thinking and pondering this situation, he probably falls asleep. This is why he is in a dream now, as we come to verse 20. When he considered this, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. So I hope you don't dream while you're awake. Um, most of us dream while we're asleep. So I can see that scene. If, if, you, if you can, re, I don't know how many of you can go back to your uh, difficult relationship times and maybe your heart was broken and you're laying in your bed crying and you drift off to sleep. Maybe that was the scene. His heart very heavy. But in that dream, God appears to him. And this is the supernatural reinforcing this message. This is an amazing thing. It must have been quite difficult to accept this. And so God knew that there was no other, think about this, how would Joseph get his mind around this? How, how would he move on if it was not for this supernatural act of God? So God divinely intervenes. And notice in verse 20, the angel says, Joseph, his, his, his mind's flooded with all kinds of thoughts and what he's going to do and what's this gonna, how is this all going to come out? And, and in the middle of it, as he dozes off, this angel calls out his name, verifies his lineage. Joseph, notice in verse 20, son of David. This is not a mistake. You have been in my lineage all along. I planned you from the foundations of the world, Joseph. I know that's a short statement, Joseph, son of David, but I want to fill in the blank. <laughs> this is a man rare to the world. He's chosen to be in this lineage. And then he says, do not fear. Well, yeah, there's a lot to fear about. We're talking a huge commitment. I get a wife with a package deal. And right now, I don't know who this is from. I don't understand this. It's going to be costly. Who's going to hire a carpenter in a Jewish, religious, legalistic world that has a child out of wedlock? This is my business. This is going to destroy what I have. And, and think about destroying Oh man, this is going to be great for the in-laws and the outlaws. You wonder why they showed up in Bethlehem with nobody. Doubtlessly, they felt very alone. This was a huge, huge commitment. Think about walking down the roads and, they peep, and the people saying, there they are. There's that couple. 
He's pondering this. One more thought along this line. God hasn't spoken for 400 years. And this is how he does it. Isn't that amazing? Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. See, these words strengthen Joseph to know and to obey God's word. And doesn't God's word always strengthen us and help us know to obey God's word? That's why we preach the Bible here. I know it may be a little bit rare anymore. But how else do we know how to conduct ourselves? How we feel or how we think or what the kids think should be done or what the adults think should be done. Everybody's got an opinion of how you live life nowadays. And what I love about this is Joseph hears these words, and you'll see at the end of this, he gets up and he obeys God's word. I wish we would do that more often, wouldn't we? He wasn't the earthly father of Jesus, but Jesus was his legal son. And by the sovereign grace of God, God chose him. He placed Joseph in the Davidic line. He made Joseph the earthly father of Jesus to provide for Jesus in those young years to protect Jesus. You know Satan would have killed that child. You know he tries to kill that child. He's already moving in Herod's heart. He's already moving in wicked peoples and soldiers who would slay little children. He's already moving. He wants that child dead. And God put Joseph there to protect and provide for that child. And Joseph rises up. And men, there is a great teaching for us, a biblical manhood here. God gives us, by his gift, those that we care for. We protect and we provide and we shepherd and we lead. And Joseph is such a good role model of that. Men, I would encourage you to ponder those things as you think about it. However, don't miss the profound statement that an angel makes. (laughs) What's in her is not from you, it's from the Spirit. It's not from another man. You don't have to worry about that because I know you were thinking, boy, (laughs) Who is this? Who got my wife? Who got this? Who impregnated my woman? This is of God. The Spirit of God is no less than God. He shares the very nature of God. He is the Spirit of God. We call Him the Holy Spirit. And He is indwelling this child in the womb of Mary. And this is the testimony of God on the virgin birth and the virgin conception. This is God's testimony. And again, if we have a problem with the virgin conception or the virgin birth, we have a problem with God. Because you reject his whole plan. You can't just take pieces out and say, well, I like this, but I don't like that. And so God knew he needed a perfect savior. So he said, Joseph, I got a job for you, but it's a little different than what you probably thought you were going to be. I want you to protect and provide for a child that's not yours, it's mine. What an amazing thought. Three, God's plan confirmed it's Jesus. Look at verse 21. I love this. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Dad, father, earthly, husband, earthly father, this is what you get to do. She's going to bear the son. You're going to call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so this angel gives the results of this divine and historical providential and covenant promise. And, and I wrote in my notes, it's an angelic ultrasound. It's a boy. I mean, nobody would know that, right? I mean, we're talking 
2,000 years ago, I know ultrasound's been around a little while, but there was no way they knew what this child was till it made its grand appearance. But not, not for God. This is his son. This is the son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And his name shall be called Jesus. We're not sure why John the Baptist's name was given different than his father's name, but we do know why they gave Jesus' name. One, because God said, and two, because his name represents what he's going to do. He's going to save. That's his job. That's why he's sent here. And so Jesus is this form, this Hebrew form, if you study it long enough and chase it down, we get Joshua and Yeshua and so forth from it meaning Jehovah, Yahweh, will save. And, and all others born with that name, past, present, or future, they cannot do what this child's going to do. So he's given this tremendous name. And this is the plan of God. She's going to have a boy. His name will be Jesus. He will be Savior. And there will be no other way, no other truth, no other life, that will bring people to me. And that's what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the goal. The apostles believed this later on. They stood before the killers of Christ in Acts chapter 4, 12. and said there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men, listen to this, by which we must be saved. Jesus, that's his name. Fourth thought, the, promises, the promise of God's Shekinah glory to dwell among us. The promise of God's Shekinah glory to dwell among us. Look at 22 and 23. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Matthew uses the word or the phrase often to be fulfilled or to fulfill. It's repeated throughout his writings. And it's always, in, in most cases, it's always linked to the Messiahship of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in our text, Matthew drops in the great verse, Isaiah 7:14, which is closely tied to chapter 9, verse 6. The original verse in the Old Testament reads this way, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah chapter 9, just a few chapters down, context is still fairly the same. I'll explain that in a minute. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7 goes on to tell us that um, he will have no end, his increase of his government will go on forever, it will be full of peace, he'll have the throne of David, he'll rule with justice and righteousness forevermore. Now, the New Testament is filled with with the fulfillments of God's promises. Um, but this one is unique. And, and in, as we study the Old Testament promises of God, 
um, there's both close fulfillment and then there's farther fulfillment. How many of you have read these verses? You said, oh, I love Isaiah 7, 14. And I, I love Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Those are great Christmas verses. And then you went back and studied Isaiah. You didn't know what they were, every verse around there meant. It's an interesting context that it's laid in. I think it's important that you do understand the context of verses. And let me set the scene here because I think this makes this really special. Why Matthew quotes this verse. In verse 23, we see Isaiah, Isaiah 7, 14 quoted. And the scene on Isaiah 7 and following is the reign of King Ahaz. Now, how many know if he's a good king or a bad king? He's bad. He's really bad. <laughs> and so here, the setting here is, is Ahaz is the son of a great king, Uzziah. Uzziah was a good king in, uh, southern, in the southern tribes. But Ahaz, his son, was absolutely wicked. Uh, Ahaz led Jerusalem into deep idolatry. He introduced much worship that had come and gone, but he, he did it at a new level of the worship of Moloch and burning babies and so forth. There were two other kings in the area, Risen, the, the king of Syria, and then uh, Pekah was the, was the northern tribe's king of Israel. Well, they attempt to remove Ahaz because he's a problem. They want a king there that will work with them, that will help them, and one they could benefit from. So the people of Judah do um, several things. They're, they're the line of Christ. This is the royal line of David is going to come through this. This is one of the most important things. And, and they're threatened. They're threatened. If you wipe out the northern tribes, that's the Davidic line. And so Ahaz, instead of turning to God, which we wished he would have done, he turns to seek help from a king of Assyria, Telag-Palazer. Now, Telag-Palazer, he doesn't care about God. He just wants money. So Ahaz goes into the temple, robs all the gold out of it to pay him to help protect. There's a prophecy in here somewhere. This thing's a mess. Uh, the, the nation of Israel is split in two kingdoms. The northern tribes never have a god, godly king. The southern tribes have a few of them. Nobody's pursuing God. Everything's a wreck. That's the scene that's happening here. So the prophet Isaiah comes along. He tells Ahaz that God will deliver him from these two enemy kings. You think that would be good news. Ahaz does not listen. And in fact, he turns and tries to act just opposite of what I, uh, Isaiah tells him to do. He rejects the prophecy. But Isaiah was speaking for God. And wicked king Ahaz would not destroy God's kingdom. And so uh, Isaiah says, you're going to get a sign. You're going to get a sign. Now, what's interesting about this um, just real quick, I don't want to get lost too much in this, but you have to catch this. The prophet Isaiah uses the word, you are going to get a sign. Now, you and I would read that and we'd say, well, that's singular. Go look at it in the Hebrew. It's plural. He's speaking to the nation. He's speaking even to us as we read this. You are going to receive a sign. This was uh, neither... Uh, proclaiming just to him or, or that he was there just to help him out. God had a plan to stop these wicked kings so that this, to the line of David would not be destroyed. And through uh, Palazzar, um, the northern kingdom would be destroyed. They tried to overrun the, the southern kingdom, but God would preserve this line. And so 
here's this mess going on. And in the middle of this, God, in this ancient prophecy, says that there's a child coming. And he says, look, you don't really believe in me, but you're going to have a child so that when you have that child, you're going to know that this was God. This was God. So when the New Testament comes along, it looks at a further prophecy. This, was, this prophecy was not only about a child that Ahaz would come that would show that God was right, that he would protect the southern kingdom, but it was greater prophecy that was coming of a Messiah. And that's why we often quote these things. And the fact that the virgin shall be with child, as the verse quotes, is a marvelous statement. It's a reminder that God was looking out for this nation. He was looking out for us. And these wicked kings and all the wars that were going on, if you study Ahaz and Jezebel and you you read all that stuff, it is bad. And in that, God was protecting it. And so that's why Isaiah is often used. And the Bible says that this child's going to come and he's going to be Emmanuel. Notice that in our text. He's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. Well, where was God with them before? How did they see God was with them before? Shekinah glory, wasn't it? He filled the temple. They always knew God was with them because he led them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He filled the temple. They always knew God was there by his Shekinah glory. And yet now the Bible says the glory of God was going to come to earth. John put it this way, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten. Wow. Boy, when you look at that manger scene set up on your piano at home or wherever you have it, this was God's goal to shine his glory into this onto this baby that was there to represent him, to for us to see him. The Bible says that Jesus is the is the glory, the unseen glory of God, the invisible God made real. And here he is among us. This is no ordinary holiday that should be skipped over and not thought of as Christians. Number five, the obedience of an earthly father in the impeccability of a heavenly son. Look at these last few verses. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Well, verse 24 tells us that Joseph awoke. He went to sleep very troubled. And he awoke with a revelation of God. God had revealed the truth of Mary's condition to him. He had revealed the announcement of God is coming to earth. And he's here. And he's in your wife-to-be's womb. And he's going to save people from their sins. The scriptures are silent on Joseph's reaction. But I think it describes to us his immediate obedience. I think humanly, I can imagine his relief. Remember this man loves God. He's righteous. What a relief that his dear Mary was faithful. What a relief that must have been. But... but, the Bible just tells us that he, he, he gets up and this trusting, righteous man that, 
that now is going to have earthly responsibility for the Son of God commits his faithfulness to God once again and he gets up and he goes and he obeys. Very little is told, us, told to us about Joseph's life. We only see him on a few more occasions, but they're marvelous. We see him bring Jesus to be dedicated at the temple. He obeyed the law. He knew that he needed to be dedicated and circumcised. He brought him there. That turned into just an amazing event with people who were faithful there, Simeon and Anna. And then we see him taking baby Jesus and Mary to Egypt. The wise men warned of Herod's wicked plan and Joseph as the good earthly father, protector, provider of his son and his wife designs an escape plan given by God and off to Egypt he goes. And there in Egypt, the country that opposed God's people for a long time, there the Savior is kept and protected as Joseph watches over this gift from God. We see him one more time in the scriptures and it's when They've been up celebrating the Passover 12 years after the birth of Christ. Jesus is now a youngster and he is in teaching at the temple and they forget about him. Uh, maybe things are better or at least he's traveling from a group from the Galilee area and big groups going, kids running over. We've Maybe some of us have all left church and thought, I don't know, maybe they're all back there and we leave. <laughs> well, this happened with Joseph and Mary, and remember as they went back, and there we begin to see Jesus speak for the first time, and he says, I must be about my father's business. There he was teaching the leaders of Israel. And after that, the scriptures are silent on Joseph. We don't know how he dies. He's clearly not at the cross. Jesus entrusts his mother, Mary, to John, for John to care for her. And most believe Joseph is long dead. However, Joseph's abiding love for God and his obedience to the plan of God makes him say, look, I will withgo my marital rights. And he says in verse 25, the Bible says this, but he kept her a virgin until she gave birth. Notice that little word, until. There's some foreign teachings out there, aren't they? Aren't there? There's churches that teach that she was a perpetual virgin. Not according to this Bible. And not according to the one on your lap. The Bible says that they had many sons and daughters. We see uh, the siblings of Jesus throughout the gospel account. This wasn't the purpose. All that does is bring worship to Mary. If she was here today, she would say, that's worthless. Do not worship me. Worship the son that God gave me and let me carry for a short time and care for. He is the only one who could save you. And so the passage ends, she gave birth until she gave birth to a son. And Joseph does exactly what, Jesus, what the angel asked him to do. Name him Jesus. Name him Savior. One who can save all walks of life. People from every tribe and tongue. And so this supernatural conception, this virgin birth provides this beautiful start to the earthly ministry of Jesus. His life, and get this theological term down, his birth, his life, everything he did was impeccable. We refer to it as the impeccability of Jesus Christ. It is not stained in any 
way, shape, or form by the sin of man. And yet he dies with sinners for us. So there's so much glory in that manger, folks. There's so much glory in this scene as we look at the Christmas season and think about what's going on here. Don't miss it. Ponder it. Maybe ask somebody at the grocery store, who do you think Jesus is? It's, it'd be a good question, right? Everybody's talking about him. They're singing in Walmart about him. They're, I mean, everybody is. Good time to say, who do you think Jesus is? Be ready to give him an answer. Amen? Father, thank you for a chance to look at this conception of Christ. We'll focus more on the birth next week, Lord, but we marvel at this, Lord. But we marvel at you, God. You're a great God. You're the creator God. You're the sustainer God. You're, you have the plan. You're, you're, the, you're the Father, Lord. And we believe you by faith. And so when we come to this passage, as miraculous it is, it is, as supernatural as it is, you have granted us faith to believe. And so for many in this room or many hearing this message, we don't have a problem with it. Because God said it. We believe it. We don't believe because we've somehow on our own effort came to some great understanding. There's so many things here, Lord, that, that are very difficult from a human perspective. But we believe because you said it. Because we believe you, God. We are your children. We follow you. And so, Lord, I'd ask that in this Christmas season, we would be constantly reminded, Lord, of the beauty of it. And Lord, there are so many fun things and so many children in the room and, and I know they're excited about presents and all of that and I am too. But I never want to forget. I never want to forget this miraculous, supernatural event that secured my eternity. What an amazing thing, Lord. You protected him from the sin nature of man he went on to live an impeccable life, died an impeccable death, and sits at your right hand after the resurrection, waiting to make his enemies his footstool. So Lord, thank you for Christmas. It's an amazing time of year. May you be worshiped and glorified in all that we do individually and as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.